Turn to the book of Psalms this morning. So we have a one-week interlude in Psalms before we begin 1 John. So that's where we're headed um, as the people of God. So Psalm 133 today. Don't get ahead of yourselves, kids. All right. All right. So here's where we are in Psalm 133. We are. Uh, this is a very short uh, psalm, so I'm going to, ex- and I love what Cindy did um, with us singing uh, that first song today, uh, because we basically sung what we'd be reading today. So would you please stand for the reading of God's Word uh, from Psalm 133 this morning. This is a song of ascents of David. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. So here's where we have. So when we get to a certain particular section of the book of Psalms, probably from Psalm 120 through Psalm 134, all of them have this little... um, uh, introduction, and it says the Song of Ascents. So, now the Song of Ascents are songs that were to be sung by the pilgrims of the Jews who were on their way up to the mountaintop fortress of Jerusalem. So they would be singing these particular songs on their journey. So if you were an Israelite, if you were a Jew, there were three times that you were called to worship at Jerusalem. You were called uh, during the Passover. You were called during the Festival of Weeks, or what we would call Pentecost. And you would also be called uh, when we, they would set up the, the tents or booths or tabernacles. So those three times, Passover, Weeks, and Feast of Booths. And as you were going, uh, I want you to imagine this for a second, because I, I think this is funny. So humor me just for a second, okay? Humor me for a second, because it says, A song of a sense of David. But I think maybe, that maybe, uh, just imagine, if you're a Jew, I think maybe Jewish mothers sort of helped King David write this psalm. How many of you have been on a car ride that just would not ever end? Anybody ever been on a road trip? And I will tell you that if you have young children in the midst of a road trip, it doesn't matter how long it is, it is one hour too long. Right? If it's a four-hour trip, it should have been a three-hour trip. If it's a 12-hour trip, it should have been an 11-hour trip. And I will tell you that we have gone on some long road trips in in the history of the Boomer family. And and sometimes, uh, and I don't know how how you guys are, but, but typically different people have different expectations and different perspectives in the midst of road trips. How many of you are... Um, journey people. You just enjoy the journey of the road trip. Any of you people out there? I do not want to travel with you. I am all about destination. I want to get to the destination as quickly as possible, and I I want to get there as soon as we possibly can. As a matter of fact, I think one of our personal, um, you know, and I I wear this as a badge of honor, and maybe uh, it's the scarlet letter, uh, but maybe one time we actually traveled from a church here in Smithfield, and we were on our way to Disney World. We, we went to worship. We left about 1230. We stopped one time in South Carolina before we got to the Marriott Resort in Orlando. One time. That's right. That's right. <laughs> My family's a very blessed family, right? We stopped one time, a little south of the border. You guys know where it is, just a little on the other side, filled up with gas, got snacks, and went on, right? 
And I remember distinctly, the kids were like, Dad, we have to go to the bathroom somewhere in Jacksonville. And I remember putting on an audiobook thinking, I pray that the media drug will take effect and they will lose, you know, their perspective of a needing. And we got all the way there. It was great. It was a wonderful time. We had a great time at Disney. I think that Blake and Hannah are actually in Orlando on their way back. Uh, and so they are experiencing that. Now, think about that. When you've been on a road trip, when you've been on your way somewhere, right, you know, you know that things can become very difficult, right? You know, you know and I can imagine, you know, if you're King David, and I can imagine that, you know, hey, hey, Dad, Amnon touched me again. Like, be quiet, Absalom. Don't make me pull this donkey over one more time, okay? Don't make me pull this, you know, this. Uh, but what about Adonijah? And, and that little baby Solomon, he thinks he's so smart. You know, I wish he would just be quiet, right? I mean, you could just see. And so in the midst of this, so think about this. The Song of Ascents, you know, that a Jewish family would be on their way up, and you could tell that the mom would say, hey, I think it's time for us to sing Psalm 133. I think it's time, because the children need to be reminded of, of what is good and pleasant. And so when we get to Psalm 133, here it is. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Now, there's two things that it says there. First, it says, behold, meaning that it doesn't happen very often, okay? That it's something that, that should happen, but behold, we're actually witnessing two brothers getting along. I had one brother, he was five years younger, and I think that my parents thought that we were probably never going to be good friends because we fought like cats and dogs when we were growing up. And, and today, my brother is one of my very good friends. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing for me to call my brother and for him to call me, for us to pray for one another, for us to care for one another. Now, we still have intense fellowship, but we always hug, you know, and we always go our way, and we end up having you know, a really good time together. But there's, there's two things there. It says how good and pleasant it is. Now, you know this, right, that there are some things that are good for you, but they are not pleasant, right? Like, for example, sometimes you may go through a trial, you know, in your life, you may go through some affliction, you may go through some sort of difficulty, and on the back side, you may understand that it is good for you, right? It is good for your soul, it is good for your family, it is good for the growth and your love for Jesus, but it is not pleasant while you're going through it, right? It's not pleasant at all. How many of you pray, Lord, please grow me through affliction this week? Anybody? I've never received a prayer card out in the offering plate saying, Lord, please help me to grow in affliction. doesn't exist. Now, there's other things that we would actually say you know, are pleasant but are not good, right? And they're seemingly pleasant. They're seemingly delightful. And we think about that in the midst of our own sins, right? Like they're not good, but for a time they're pleasant. Like, for example, that second or third piece of cheesecake. It's, it's not as pleasant as the first one, but it's certainly not going to be good later, right? You know, it's not going to be good for your stomach. It's not going to be good for your waistline. It's not going to be good, you know, all over the place. So, so there's, there's a sense in which even so, sort of overeating could be something that is pleasant, maybe for a, a season, but boy, you just feel miserable later. Or there's other sins, too, that we see that, that, that we're lured into, thinking that there's something pleasant, but it's not good. It's not good for our souls. It's not good for those people around us. It's not good 
for us. But notice what it says. It is something that is good and pleasant when brothers dwell in unity. Now, when brothers dwell in unity, I think that what we're talking about there is not just the idea that of, of blood kin, not just my brother Heath or, or my two sons or my two daughters or our family, right? But it's talking about the family of God. Because we know that, that in Christ, like when we like fall on our knees and say, like, I am a sinner in need of forgiveness. And when you are ushered into the kingdom of God, because of your faith in Jesus, not because of your good works, not because of how good you are, but based upon you know, the good works of Jesus on your behalf. We call that substitutionary atonement. When you believe and trust in Jesus, that he saves you from your sins, what happens is you get a big family that goes along with that. And we get the family of God. And so it's brothers living in unity and, and purpose together. Now that brothers, again, it's talking about the we are all adopted into the family of God through our faith and trust and belief in Jesus. So that when we are together, we are brothers and sisters. I had one seminary professor, his name was Dr. Dr. Roger Nicole. He's now in glory. And he would tell every one of us in seminary, he would learn our last names, and he would call me Brother Boomer because he was from the Netherlands and he had an accent and he could roll his R's and it was awesome, right? But there's this older man and he would call everyone brother or sister and their last name because he says that um, fraternal relationship, that familial relationship is, is the most important relationship and, and the best way for me to call you. So brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you are a brother and sister in Christ, and when you are dwelling in unity, it is good and it is pleasant. And what's it like? Now we see this. There's two metaphors, two similes actually, uh, in verses 2 and verse 3. that It speaks about these things. So you can almost tell, you know, when, when Abigail is telling David, you need to write a song on the Song of Ascents about how we can get along in the midst of the road trip on the way to worship. And the kids are like, yeah, Dad, tell us what it's like. What's it like? What's unity like? Why is it good and pleasant? And he says, well, kids, it's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Now, that is you know, talking about Exodus chapter 30, when it was the ordination of Aaron. And what would happen at the ordination of Aaron, they were not just taking a thimble full of oil, but they were taking a lot of oil. I mean, I mean several cups of oil, and they would pour it upon Aaron, and it's a fragrant oil. They mixed it with cinnamon and cassia and other, other things that I don't even know how they smell, but it was supposed to be smell, this delightful smell, this delightful anointing, and it would hit him from the top of his head, and it would run down, run through his beard, it would run down the collars, and it would run all the way to the floor, right? And so we see this idea that this blessing, this, this good and pleasant thing, which is known as the Christian unity, that when brothers dwell in unity, those who love and trust and believe in Jesus, when we're getting along, it is running down, running down. Now, in a similar way, in verse 3, it says like this, it is like the dew of Hermon. Now, what is or who is Hermon? Now, it's not a who, it's a what, right? It's a mountain. It's the biggest mountain in, um, in and around Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a mountaintop fortress, but in the distance you can see this huge mountain and it's called Mount Hermon. Now, what does it say about Mount Hermon? Mount Hermon was, has seasonal winter and spring snowfalls which cover all three of its peaks for most of the year. 
And when, when those snows melt, they, they travel down from Mount Hermon, they, 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 they fall into rivulets and, and rivers and rock channels, and, and they feed springs. And so what you have in this very desert wasteland, which is known as um, you know, the, the mountaintops, you actually have Mount Hermon, which is a very green mountain because of all the snow melt and all the snow that occurs there. And what you find is that it actually, all of this snow melts and it forms streams and rivers. These merge to become the Jordan River and they run off. And so what we're seeing there, it's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. So there's this idea that it falls from the greater to the lesser, right? So the Hermon is this huge place and then the dew and the water falls down and the people of Zion or the place of Zion is blessed. So, so what, do we, what do we get from that, right? Well, here's, here's what we understand from that. First of all, is that the unity being described here in verses, um, chapter, verse 1, as it's likened in verses 2 and 3, talking about the oil, the precious oil on the head, and also the dew of Hermon, it represents, it, it's only coming from, unity is a gift from God and flows from Him. Because it says, running down, running down. The anointing was done at God's direction, in His way, with His authority, and any blessing conferred was from God. And that's why we see this idea of running down, running down, running down. It's a gift from the Lord. So as we pray that our church would be unified in purpose, in view of the gospel, loving one another, it is a gift from God which flows from Him to His people. Secondly, we see that unity is for all of us and flows from the greater to the lesser. You know, as, just as Mount Hermon was the highest mountain in Israel, located several hundred miles north of Jerusalem, you know, we see that this blessing flows from the greater to the lesser. And we see that when unity occurs at the top, we see great blessing. Like, let me give you an example. There are three great institutions that the Lord has created in the midst of this world. The first of which, you know, um, well, I'll just call it the, um, the home, right? The family. And we see this. When moms and dads, when mothers and fathers are getting along in the midst of the home, it is a blessing to the children. Your children are blessed when moms and dads are loving each other and they're in a unified spirit with a unified purpose and a vision for the kingdom of God. And that's a wonderful thing, right? As it flows down to the blessing of the children. Now, disunity among mom and dad also flows down, right? And we see that that is not a blessing, but it is a hardship and a difficulty. In a similar way, we also see this in the government, right? The, the Lord has set up governments, and He's set up princes and kings and, and governments. And we know that the people, the people like us who are not elected officials, are blessed when there is a unified purpose in the midst of our government, right? Like when there is not partisanship, when, when, when the government is pursuing righteousness and everybody is unified, the people of God are blessed. We get that, right? As a matter of fact, do you know that the Senate actually affirmed something unanimously this week? To end, you know, what is it, standard time? To keep daylight savings time forever? I think we're going through one more cycle, and then our sleep patterns will never be disrupted again. And I was like, wow, the Senate actually voted unanimously for something? I was like, that's incredible. 
Like, that's a miracle, right, at this point. Like, it's absolutely incredible that that would happen. But even more so, the other institution that we see that the Lord has set up, and this is in the church, and that when elders and deacons, you know, are getting along, when the church leadership is getting along, when there's unity purpose, when there's unity together, it flows down from elders and deacons all the way down to everyone who is a member of the church. From... You're greater to lesser. That's, that's what we see. We also see in the midst of you know, verse 133 that it is a foretaste of heaven. So again, some things are good but not pleasant. Other things are pleasant but not good. But unity is both of these things. And one day there will be no more friction or acrimony or divisiveness or schism or fractious you know, denominationalism that occurs. But in heaven, everyone will be Presbyterian. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I mean, you guys are giving high art. I'm, I'm, you guys know I'm joking, right? Okay. We'll all be Christians there, and it won't, we, we won't worry about those kind of things, right? Um, I mean, but, but when we see these things, but, let, 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 me, um, let me say this. How many of you in the midst of the church, though, have witnessed disunity within the body of Christ? How many of you have been hurt by other people in the midst of um, just conflict and relational discord in the midst of the body of Christ. And it hurts. It hurts deeply. It is not good and it is not pleasant. I think about these words, you know, um, with regard to, you know, some of the, the, the friction within the church. It's, you know, whether it's animosity or we get annoyed with one another, we're displeased with other people, we're exasperated, there's impatience, there's indignation, there's resentment and bitterness. And sometimes rather than loving each other, we would just rather marginalize somebody and put them over on the side and not deal with them at all. I think that's one of the difficulties in the, in the midst of the body of Christ is that we expect more, right? When we're hurt deeply by somebody who claims the name of Christian and is a part of the family of God, and when we are hurt by them, um, it just hurts deeply. One of the things that has occurred in, in, in my own um, ministry is I would say that the difficulties within the body of Christ Oftentimes, I mean, we see that there is external pressure outside these walls that can be placed upon us. But even more so, there is when there's friction and conflict that is not dealt with well in the midst of the body of Christ, it begins to cause great and wreak great havoc within the body of believers. As a young pastor, um, I remember seeing a conflict between two leaders in our church. And I remember seeing these two leaders, men who would, would preach forgiveness, who would demonstrate grace to me. And I would say one was a father in the faith and one was probably a, a, maybe a young uncle in the faith. And they had a conflict. And they don't, not only had a conflict, they had a, their wives began to have a conflict. And their wives had a conflict and they had a conflict. And then all of a sudden what I'm hearing is, Rather than us reconciling and working towards forgiveness, one of those individuals has now left the church and it caused great disunity in the midst of the 
body of Christ. You guys have all seen this, right? And rather than dealing with these issues and dealing with conflict in a, a biblical way, what happens in the midst of the body of Christ when, here's what typically happens. When somebody doesn't agree with somebody, they just head for the door. They head for the exits and don't want to deal with the conflict. Let me, um, Mike Minter, uh, a pastor up in uh, D.C., um, actually talks about, um, here, here are the, um, um, this is the anatomy of a conflict, right? The anatomy of a conflict. So here, here's what, I, I think this is brilliant. Uh, there are 14 steps in, in the midst of a church conflict, and let me just give it to you, okay? I'm just going to run through them. First, one, an offense occurs, right? And by the way, that's going to happen, right? We're going to be offensive. We're going to be offensive in the midst of the church because when you, where two are gathered together, you can be sure that we need to pray because sin is present, right? I mean, that's the reality, right? We are going to be offensive to one another. So first, an offense occurs. Two, here's what happens. After an offense occurs, a biased view of the offense is shared with friends. You ever heard that? Three, those friends take up the offense of the injured parties. Four, sides begin to form in the church. I mean, and these sides are as distinct as the aisle in the middle of this room. One side versus the other side. Five, suspicion on both sides develops. Suspicion develops on both sides. Six, each side looks for evidence to confirm their suspicion, and you can be sure that they will find it. Right? Seven, exaggerated statements are made in the midst of the offense and the conflict. Exaggerated statements. Number eight, in the heat of conflict, those involved hear things that were never said and say things they wish they had never said. Have y'all witnessed this? Nine, third parties, no matter how well-intentioned, can never accurately transfer information from one offended party to the other. They can't do it. Ten, this is, this is crazy. Past offenses unrelated to the original offense surface. You see this, right? Eleven, integrity is challenged on both sides. Twelve, people call each other liars in the family of God. Thirteen, this is where, this is where I get involved. Those who try to solve the problem, i.e. church leadership and pastors, are blamed for not following the proper procedure and become the new focus in the issue. So it's no longer about the issue, it's about the process wasn't performed correctly and you're failing as a leader and so now you're the problem and there's no way that we can remain. And then 14, the last one, many are hurt and many of those who are hurt leave the body of Christ or leave that particular you know, church. We see that. Is that about sum it up? Is that about sum it up? I mean, have you seen, I've, I've witnessed all of those steps occurring in the midst of that, right? So what do we do with that? Okay, I don't want to leave you here without like some sort of tool in your tool belt to kind of work through. So how do we not do that, right? Because quite frankly, once we get to step five, where suspicion on both sides develops, we are so far down the spiral that it is very difficult 
to, to have Maverick come out of the flat spin. Okay? That's just a reference to my Navy guys. All right? Some of you guys totally get it. You know, you got danger zone running through your ears now, right? So let me, let me um, explain this. Um, in the midst of, of being a pastor, and I think, you know, trying to work through this, there's something that, uh, there's a book that I think is really, really helpful, and it's a book called Good and Angry. Uh, we, we've done it as a, as a Bible study. We've done it as a, as, a, as a group. I think some of the concepts, some of the gospel dynamics are so rich within this book that I recommend it for everybody. Um, so, so what do we do? So let's talk about forgiveness for a second. I think there's three steps in forgiveness. And oftentimes as believers, we run to the second step without dealing with the first step. The first step is this. When an offense occurs um, and you've been wronged by somebody else, like you need to take into account attitudinal forgiveness. And this is a vertical forgiveness between you and the Lord. Okay. After we work through attitudinal forgiveness, then we need to go to transactional forgiveness which is horizontal forgiveness, where we actually go to the other person. But we never should go to the other person before we have a vertical forgiveness that is commanded by our Father in heaven. And then the hope of doing uh, attitudinal forgiveness vertically and horizontal transacted forgiveness, the hope is that we will be reconciled to that person. Now that is not promised, and and that may not happen but we are called to do these three steps. And what I have found in the midst of my marriage, what I have found in the midst of uh, being a parent, what I have found in being in the midst of being a pastor, is that oftentimes I am not doing a good job of the vertical forgiveness before I actually go to some sort of transacted forgiveness with the other person. And that's the step that we short circuit. Let me read from you just an excerpt from Good and Angry, uh, a book by David Pallison. Um, he talks about attitudinal forgiveness. He says, first, he says, forgiveness comes in two forms. And again, that's the attitudinal and the transacted. He says, first and foundationally, you forgive another person before God, whether or not that person admits or even recognizes any wrong. This is attitudinal forgiveness. Listen to how Jesus speaks in Mark eleven twenty five. He says, whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Or, or listen to what he says in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 15, with regard to the Lord's Prayer. He says, pray then like this. This is Jesus teaching his disciples to pray. Pray then like this. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And he goes on. Um, But it says at the very end of this, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. And in both of those cases, in both of those cases, you are talking with God, not the person who wronged you. It's just you and the Lord, right? It's just you and the Lord between yourselves. The person, that person who has wronged you is not a part of the conversation. You stand alone before God your father dealing with your own attitudes. In the Mark 11 passage, Jesus says to deal with whatever you have against anyone else. He doesn't even tell you to try to sort out what really happened and whether it was a real wrong or only a subjective feeling of offense. Conflicts are impenetrably complex. Did you actually do something against me? 
Or did I misunderstand what you were doing? Or was I just being hypersensitive? Or it's hard to know what really happened because so much was happening in both parties. Trying to figure out the definitive explanation leads to more disagreement and outrage. Instead, Jesus simply says that if you have anything against anyone, forgive. In the Matthew 6 passage, Jesus emphasizes dealing with real wrongs. Our debtors are people who owe us. The mercy of God, our Father in heaven, is front and center in helping us. The vertical aspect of forgiveness deals with our attitudes. Its purpose is to change you, not to deal with the other person. You got that? This attitudinal forgiveness is meant to change you. It prepares you so you will go to the other person already willing to be merciful. You are no longer holding the grudge, building up bitterness on the defensive or on the offensive. This allows us to go from a place where our hands are clenched to where our hands are open. This will manifest itself in this way. You will go from looking like this to looking like this. Okay? From being hard-hearted, you know, maintaining bitterness within your heart to saying, I have already forgiven you. Now again, you have not spoken a word to this person who has offended you. Not one word. You have already forgiven them. By the way, Jesus says, you have to. (laughs) He commands you. The Lord God of heaven commands you to deal with his attitudinal forgiveness piece. Commanded. And in the midst, and, and remember this, the commandments of the Lord are meant so that you will flourish. Because I will tell you, friends, brothers and sisters, when you hold on to bitterness, it feels good, but it eats away your soul. It destroys you. It makes you less of a person. But forgiveness can bring great healing. Secondly, after this has happened, the second aspect of forgiveness is transacted. Again, I'm just reading this from Good and Angry. It's so good. The second aspect of forgiveness is transactional forgiveness. Again, listen to how Jesus describes it in in, in Luke. He says, if your brother sins... Bring it up with him directly. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Then between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And Jesus says, as many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times. Seven times, or 70 times seven. Notice that here Jesus envisions a conversation with the other person. You bring it up constructively. The other person asks to be forgiven. The interpersonal interaction is able to be both candid and full of mercy. Think about that. When was the last time you had a big conflict and you were both candid and full of mercy as you worked through the conflict? It's a rare combination because... The interaction is able uh, because the attitudinal forgiveness has already happened. It is also worth noticing that in both cases, Jesus chooses to portray the other person as a repeat offender. He or she keeps doing it even after admitting it's wrong. 
That's realism. How many, how many of you get tired of forgiving your spouse the same thing over and over again? Right? You get, you're just weary from it. And you're like, Lord, how many times do I have to forgive him? And Jesus says, forever. It's basically when 70 times 7 is basically like, he's not saying like it's only 490 times, because I'd already be out of forgiveness with Katie at that point. You know, he's basically saying it's an infinite amount of times that you are called to forgive. Thank goodness. You know, um, Jesus portrays the other person as a repeat offender. He or she keeps doing it even after admitting it's wrong. That's realism. That's why we need patience. That's why we are continually driven back to our Father to seek forgiveness ourselves and to again work out the attitudinal forgiveness. Then we can again move toward the other person to seek transacted forgiveness. The combination of attitudinal and transacted forgiveness helps make sense of many common and extremely tangled situations. I'll mention three. First, what if the other person won't hear you out? He or she gets defensive and self-righteous, counter-attacking when you are seeking to be constructive. Again, we are driven back to our Father to forgive attitudinally. This vertical dimension of forgiveness must always happen, and it keeps your attitude in check. The horizontal dimension is a more uncertain and hazardous road, a goal to pursue, not a certainty. It takes two to reconcile, just like it takes two to make a war. But one can forgive even when the other is still at war. It is called loving your enemy. Mm. Second, what if the person who hurts you is off the scene, perhaps dead, perhaps long vanished? out of your life, perhaps too hostile or even dangerous to approach, the attitudinal forgiveness means you can always deal with the things that poison your own heart. There might be people in your life who have wronged you and they are dead. And yet you are commanded by the Lord Jesus to forgive them. You cannot reconcile with them. But you are commanded in terms of your own heart and attitude to forgive them. Brothers and sisters, I'm not saying this is easy either, right? But I'm saying when we hold on to anger and bitterness, when we hold on to conflict, what Pallison says in his book is it is poison to our soul. Transacted forgiveness and actual reconciliation are desirable fruits, but not always attainable. But by God's mercy, we can always establish our hearts in mercy. We are not left in limbo when there is no possibility of reconciling interaction. Third, seeing that our forgiveness of others has two interconnected parts helps us navigate the opposite messages that, often, that one often hears in Christian circles. Some in the church teach, if you forgive them from the heart, then you don't need to go to the person. Others teach, unless the person asks for forgiveness, you don't need to forgive. Each focuses on a half-truth and draws a false conclusion. When you put together both halves of what Jesus did and taught on forgiveness, you get a coherent truth. So if you forgive your if so if you forgive from the heart, then you become able to go constructively to the other person when it is called for. Not to go would not would be not to love. But if the other person will not ask for forgiveness, or if it would not be wise to approach the other person, then transacted forgiveness and reconciliation can't take place but you are reconciled with God and able to forgive. Not to forgive would harbor bitterness. Forgiveness forgiveness is a conscious choice formed through knowing God's mercy to you.
It clearly recognizes that what happened was wrong. It makes no excuses for what happened. And then it lets go. Patience and forgiveness are the first two key aspects of the constructive displeasure of mercy for a reason. So I think about that, and this is hard. So again, let me sum it up. Trans, transacted or attitudinal forgiveness must come before transacted forgiveness. Attitudinal forgiveness is commanded by the Lord Jesus so that you can release anger and bitterness which will destroy your soul. Let me conclude with a story. Because, I mean, this is theory, right? I mean, this is theoretical. But in the midst of conflict with with other people around you, it becomes difficult because you've got so much sin and relationship and history tied up and twisted together in the midst of those relationships that it becomes very, very difficult. Let me give you one of the most powerful ones um, I've ever heard about or read about. Um, And I'm going to conclude with this story. Uh, And this is actually coming out of, um, it's it's a story, it's, it's about Corey Ten Boom. And it speaks about it in this way. Some of you who are reading this book, um, it's, it's an expert. It's a, it, this is an excerpt from the book Confronting Injustice Without Compromising the Truth. To see what I mean by the need for supernatural fruit produced by the Spirit, consider the case of Corey Tendum as she considered the Nazi SS officer responsible for the death of her sister at the Ravensbrück concentration camp. It is one of the most moving stories to emerge from the darkest days of the 20th century and worth quoting at length. So again, Cory Ten Boom was, was a woman whose family were hiding Jews who were then placed in a concentration camp and her sister died in a concentration camp at the hands of this Nazi officer. And this Nazi officer, post-war, is now coming to Cory Ten Boom. Okay? So I want you to think about this. And here's what it says. Betsy, and this is her sister who died, Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out after she had spoken at an evangelistic event post-World War II about the grace and mercy and forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he comes up to her and says, a fine message, Fraulein, how good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly on forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard in there. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, the hand came out, will you forgive me? And I stood there. I whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, held, hand held out. But to me, it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I have ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. 
If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. For, but forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. I would pray that our church would be a place where we forgive, where we dwell in unity, and where the, that we would know God's love intensely as the Spirit works within us. Would you pray with me? Father, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Father, it is a gift from you. And Father, I pray, Lord, that rather than being disgruntled or impatient or bitter, that we would be filled with forgiveness. And Father, your commands are not onerous to us, but Father, they are blessings and they are meant for our flourishing. And I pray, Lord, that we would know what it means to live and to flourish. Not to live as spiritual invalids, but Father, to walk with you and to abide with you. Father, you have forgiven us much. Father, when we think about the number of our sins and the extent of our sins, Father, we hide our head, but Father, you say that we are your children beloved by you because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And Father, as we have been forgiven, may we forgive much. And Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help us through the power of the Holy Spirit to forgive vertically in our attitude, to forgive horizontally as we transact forgiveness and that you would bring about reconciliation. Father, help us. Help us to walk with you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.